Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Anne of Denmark. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hill. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like us on Facebook, email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Now today we are finally starting the Stuart Consorts proper with Anne of Denmark, Queen Consort James I of England or, of course, James VI of Scotland. So as such, Anne is the first woman to be Queen of England and Scotland. Rex Fact, kicking off with a red-hot Rex Fact, love it. Biography! So Anne, or Anna, as she was actually known in Denmark, was born on the 12th of December 1574 at Skandenborg Castle in Denmark, daughter of King Frederick II of Denmark and Norway, and Sophie of Mecklenburg-Gustrau. Right, what is going on in Denmark at this point? Like, I know I've got a bit of a blank spot I need filling in from uh, Dark Ages Gods of War... Yeah. to totally hip and trendy coffee-drinking metropolitan European city? Um, at the moment, it's uh, pretty wealthy, good trade, quite peaceful, and Lutheran. I oh, key stuff, right, mm. yeah, got it. Now, when her father's told of her birth, he burst into the room to remonstrate with his wife, insisting that he wanted a son. That's <laughs> not quite back. understanding how the process works. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> Would you reckon that is just ignorance? Or was it just fury? <laughs> I, I assume just the fury, but maybe someone had to have a quiet word. What a um, silly or nasty man. Well, despite this, she was raised in uh, happy homes, initially with her maternal grandparents in Germany, before then being recalled to the royal court, where uh, her, her parents, despite that, were very happily married, and her mother was very caring for Anne and her siblings. Uh, thankfully for her father, a couple of sons did follow. Okay, yeah, good. Now, Anne has a slightly more limited education than her immediate predecessors, i.e., you know, the six wives of Henry VIII. Um, the fashion for the, having an excellent education of girls, perhaps having passed a little bit. Oh, right, so it wasn't uh, constantly upwards towards the light. There was a... This is a, ba- a backwards step. Uh, but she was very cultured, uh, had a love of dance, music and theatre, while her father's opulent new palaces enshrined in her a sort of fascination for architecture. Oh, cool. 
Now, when he died in 1588, Anne's mother asserted her influence by arranging lucrative marriages for all of her children, not least for Anne. However, it wasn't England who came calling initially, because we've got Elizabeth I on the throne, so she doesn't need a wife. But instead, it is Scotland with King James VI. Yeah, but he doesn't really want a wife, does he? From what I remember. Yeah, he he was quite slow in uh, going on the search, but there's an acceptance that a wife is required. The Danes are kind of interested in this because <laughs> they're hoping to regain the Orkney Islands, which are north of Scotland, but actually have only been Scottish territory since 1469. I remember that from the Scottish yeah. series. So it's only 100 years that the Scots have actually had mm. these islands. From the Scottish perspective, they want to secure uh, the lucrative trade route with Denmark, as well as the benefits of mar- marrying a fellow Protestant kingdom. Mm. However, they are also considering Catherine of Navarre, who is regent for the fervently Protestant kingdom of Navarre, on behalf of her brother, who is otherwise busy as Henry IV of France. Okay. Now, Catherine of Navarre is actually the preferred choice of the Lord Chancellor, Maitland, in Scotland and various other nobles, but Anne has got youth on her side, so she's just 14 years old, whereas Catherine is 31. Oh. Oh, dear. Which, in modern terms, might not sound like the advantage, but at that point, of course, they're thinking of dynasty and children, and Catherine at 31 is obviously considered incredibly old and not a great option for a large family. Imagine that, 31 being too old. James agonises over the decision, apparently stared at portraits of both women for 15 days. Not sure if that's 15 days straight or if he was coming and going, (laughs) but (laughs) it's a big decision. It is, yeah, yeah. Um, who they have Holbein on the case? Was he still still kicking about? Alas, no. Have to make okay. do without Holbein. Um, his choice may well have been assisted by uh, a riot in Edinburgh from merchants who demanded the Danish match in order to secure that oh, trade. Okay. Mm. Uh, and so James decides on Anne. And having decided, he drops Scotland's previously quite excessive dowry demands uh, and agrees a much more moderate approach, declaring that he would not be a merchant for his bride. What did he mean by that? It's love. I'm marrying. What is money? Mm. Well, indeed. I mean, having initially shown no desire to marry, as you were recalling very well, uh, Mm. James was now convinced that he was madly in love with Anne and she became a muse for his poetry. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. Mm. I mean, he's not met her at this point, of course, but nevertheless, he is madly in love. Oh, no, he's going to be in in love with the idea of Mm. her. He writes to Anne's mother of his desperation to see Anne. Since this relationship by marriage lies so close to our heart and mind, we have no higher desire than to behold in person this noble and lovable princess whose picture has fascinated our eyes and heart. Yep. Well, it would be the talk of the castle, wouldn't it? It would indeed. Yeah. And, and apparently, feeling is mutual, uh, an English spy, Thomas Fowler, reported that Anne was so far in love with the King's Majesty as it were death to her to have it broken off, and hath made good proof diverse ways of her affection, which His Majesty is apt enough to requite. Oh, this is lovely. Hmm. Shaping up well. Yeah. Anne starts learning to speak French so that she can easily converse with James. Why don't you learn English? English or Scots. French probably easier to be taught. And James speaks that as well, of course. So, um, Also sets about embroidering some shirts for James, while some 300 tailors get to work preparing her wedding dress. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, that one's a hobby, the other's a... Uh, <laughs> an industry. 300? Oh, yeah, the Danes want to impress. Yeah, well, I mean, it's better than the uh, hammer on the bonts, as they used to. But, <laughs> but th- I mean, that's too many cooks spoiling mm. the, the silken... Web. 
Yeah, you can't you can't have three hundred people working on anything beyond a building. <laughs> <laughs> Can you? So she sets sail for Scotland on the first of September, fifteen eighty nine, but encounters terrible storms uh, oh, along God. the way. Cannons roll loose on the deck. One almost crushes Anne. Oh my word! Her ship sprang a leak. They're forced to turn back, and when Anne still hasn't arrived by mid-September, James starts to worry about the contrary winds that they're experiencing and orders public prayers for her safe delivery. He uh, eventually sends some of his own ships to go and look for her, and it's not until the 10th of October, so, you know, a good month and a half after she left, that he gets the good news that Anne is safe. Uh, She lodged in the rooms of a farmer on the Norwegian island of Fleckroy, before then heading to Oslo, and basically just decides to wait out the weather until spring. Because so, so her father was king of Denmark and Norway, so it's still her territory. Oh. But yeah, so she got out to sea, been forced to come back, lands on an island, and then gets to Norway mainland, and just thinks I'm just going to wait till April, basically. Now, in time, the storms will be blamed on witches. And this results in witch trials both in Copenhagen and North Berwick, and it becomes a bit of an obsession for James for a while, so he publishes a book, Demonology, on the subject, with thousands put on trial and something like 1,500 killed in Scotland. 1,500? It's much more virulent than in England. Yeah. Uh, For now, though, James's only thoughts are for Anne, so he made the surprisingly brave decision to collect her in person. Oh. So he thinks, who cares about the storms? I'm going to get the love of my life. Oh, no, I can feel this building. And indeed, he is also beset by storms. He also endures several abortive journeys. Uh, He lands at Fleckeroy, the island where Anne was, and he insists on sleeping in the same bed that Anne had slept in. Not with her at this point. Not with her at this point, but just so that, you know, they'd Mm. been in that same bed. Before making the hard 50-mile cross-country journey to Oslo. Okay. So finally, on the 22nd of November, James arrives in Oslo and he meets Anne. Right. And how, is this, how well, does that go? As you've assumed, obviously neither of them are going to be able to live up to the romantic ideals they both build up, uh, yeah. built up over the previous months. Anne is a month short of turning 15 now. Uh, she's quite tall, blue-eyed, slender with golden hair. She's described as both godly and beautiful, though sort of portraits suggest that perhaps this was a bit exaggerated. Right. James is 23. It's rather unflatteringly described by Elizabeth Norton as being a poor physical specimen with an overlarge mm. tongue which caused him to dribble <laughs> food when he ate, as well as having an aversion to washing. Oh, good grief. Um, oh, that poor girl. Though apparently at this point, um, descriptions of him suggest, although never renowned for being particularly beautiful as a prince, he's thought, you know, perfectly respectable-looking younger man. It's perhaps right. a bit more the later James that that description really applies to. Right. Anyway, James is still very much full of chivalric daring do, so on approaching Anne, he was minded to give the Queen a kiss after the Scottish fashion. What's that? I think it just means giving her a kiss on greeting, rather than a particular... <laughs> oh, it's not like in the French style, please? Yes. Uh, with that great big tongue. <laughs> or the Glasgow kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just comes along Good and nuts <laughs> Oh, dear. Any form of uh, this uh, Scottish fashion is uh, not a customary greeting in Denmark, so Anne recoils. Uh, yeah. So there's a danger that this is all turning into a Henry VIII Anne of Cleves mm-hmm. moment. Really, the setup is almost identical. Thankfully, though, James is no Henry. So they exchange some words in private, 
and there was then some further familiarity and kisses. Oh, so he took her aside and said, this is what we do, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than flouncing out, coming back in. That, yeah, that was definitely what I presume the reaction would be. We've just spent so long with Henry that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah you've got to get back into a slightly more rational sort of yeah. thought process. Yeah. Uh, they're married the next day by the uh, Aleth minister, David Lindsay, who conducted the service in French so that Anne could understand. Oh, nice. In Oslo they are at this point. In Oslo, yes. They get married in Oslo. They're not in Scotland, though, because uh, the weather, although James has braved it to go and get there, it is pretty bad and it is winter now. So they do mm. decide that they really can't go back until April. So you get an incredibly unusual position where they just have an extended honeymoon. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so they stay with Anne's family, which is nice for Anne because she gets to spend some time with them before having to go back. Oh, not good to, to go. Um, and it's the first time really James has been able to enjoy the pleasures of family life because, of course, he's the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was fled the country, was mm. imprisoned in England from when he was a baby, and his father had died uh, prior to that as well. So, you know, he's never really had a proper nice family. So this is a lovely time for him. Uh, and they all seem to have a jolly old time of it, hunting, hawking, lots of drinking, as well as a, some more intellectual pursuits. Oh, right. The weather improves, and on the 1st of May, 1590, eight months later than expected, Anne finally arrives in Scotland uh, at Leith. She's outside Edinburgh. Okay. Uh, she's magnificently attired as she processes through the streets, so as the Danes intended, makes a very good impression. Mm. For her coronation, her mother had prepared uh, a coach of silver to be drawn by eight white horses. Fancy. Oh, yeah, she's got very sort of strong Disney princess vibes. Mm. Which is appropriate, yeah. I suppose, coming from Denmark. Why? Oh, story tales, yeah. Brothers Grimm type stuff. Mm. Unfortunately for Anne, not everyone enjoyed the spectacle. Uh, the nagging disapproval of the rather austere Kirk, or the Church of Scotland, um, provides a more accurate template for what her experience is going to be in Scotland. She is high-spirited, enjoys games, masks, pageants, all of which is looked down upon by the oh. Kirk. They think she's empty-headed and frivolous. The so ministers condemned her want of godly and virtuous exercise among her maids. Night walking and bawling. She's just a 14-year-old girl. Now, while she had come to Scotland uh, as a Lutheran, so a very strong Protestant, she mm. becomes so disenchanted with the Kirk that it seems at some point she may have converted to Catholicism. Wow. That backfired, didn't it? Indeed. Uh, perhaps influenced by the fact that there are a, are a large number of Catholics in her household. She's never officially out as Catholic, uh, but mm. it's widely suspected and, of course, criticised. Right. Oh, my gosh, she's going to be a Catholic queen of England. Well, indeed. Now, Anne is clearly no pushover, so as well as the Kirk, she also falls out with many senior nobles in Scotland, most notably the Chancellor. Uh, and she's got a tendency to speak up for those who fall from favour, i.e. with James. She's particularly defensive of anybody in her own household uh, coming a cropper, and most notoriously this happened in 1600 following the Gowrie conspiracy, in which the Earl of Gowrie and his brother were killed after a failed assassination attempt on James. So James expels the whole family um, mm. from the country, and that includes two sisters of these brothers who are in Anne's household and very close to Anne. Right. So she at first resists this happening at all and then undermines it once it's happened. So even a couple of years later, sneaks one of them back into her rooms. Okay. That's pretty bold, isn't it, of the uh, defying hmm. James? 
Yeah. Now, the church and nobles are one thing, but the most important relationship, of course, is between Anne and James. And after the initial heady romance, they prove a bit of a mismatch as a couple. Mm. So Anne's limited education isn't so well aligned with James's sort of intellectualism. Mm. And it, it becomes also a bit of an issue, perhaps a bit more later on, but it is sort of widely suspected that James may have been homosexual or perhaps bisexual, because he does have an affair with at least one woman whilst in Scotland. Oh, right. But that ladies perhaps aren't really his thing. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, it sounds miserable for her. Uh, he doesn't neglect his duties with Anne, though. So in 1594, after five years of marriage, he gives birth to a healthy son named Henry. Oh, right. Who, hang on. Henry, because... Or what's their relation to Henry the Eighth? Would it be in any reference to that? Well, James's father is Henry Lord Darnley. So probably be named after uh, his right. father. So this little boy would be King of England? Indeed, that's his destiny. Yeah. Unacknowledged at this point by Elizabeth, but essentially. Yeah, I haven't heard of him. I think bad news was approaching. It also strengthens James's hand to wanting to become King of England. The oh, fact yeah. that he has a son already, that's great news for a dynasty. Yeah, stability. Mm. Now... Birth of a son and heir should have reduced tensions uh, in the marriage, but Anne is devastated when James announces that the prince was going to be brought up at Stirling Castle by the Earl of Mar, i.e., out of Anne's household. Straight away. Catholicism stuff. Not because of Catholicism. James explains that it's the tradition for the heir. It's what happens. They go to Stirling, and are brought up by a guardian. Uh, but Anne refuses to accept this. She wants him in her possession and she tries to covertly take possession of Henry uh, at various times and uh, is very much at odds with the Earl of Mar, the chosen guardian. Yeah. So it's widely reported that Anne and James are at loggerheads. Uh, foreign ambassadors claim that Anne is plotting a route to power through her son. Oh, right, yeah. And it builds to a head in 1603 when Elizabeth I, Queen of England, dies and James does succeed her to become King James I of England, which means, of course, Anne is now Queen of England as well as Queen of Scots. Mm. So this is the union of the crown. It's crowns. It's not the creation of the United Kingdoms. So they're still two separate kingdoms. They just have the same people wearing the crowns. Yeah. yeah. James goes to England first, accompanied by some of his leading nobles, including the Earl of Mar. Anne is due to come later, but she uses James and Mar's absence as an opportunity to try and take possession of Prince Henry again. Good plan. Well, However, when plan. she... Well, indeed. So uh, she rocks up to Stirling Castle with a posse of armed nobles, but Mar's wife refuses to let them in. Mm. This leads to a rather fraught standoff until eventually James sends instructions that Henry can be handed over to Anne and that she should come down now to England with Henry and their daughter, who's called Elizabeth. Oh, that well, OK, so that's put the naming thing to bed. Thankfully, of course, this is all out of sight for Anne's new subjects and it doesn't spoil her eagerly anticipated arrival. Because England hasn't had a consort since Philip II in 1558, and we haven't had a queen consort since Catherine Parr in 1547. Wow, how many years is that? <clears throat> what year we so that's, uh, 56. Yeah, wow. Lady Anne Clifford recorded in her diary that she and her mother killed three horses through exhaustion in their rush to meet Anne when she came to London. Gosh. Uh, so by the time she got to London, she'd gathered a, gathered an escort of 250 carriages and around 5,000 horsemen. 
What, just like Pied Piper? People just follow yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. How odd. What do you text your boss? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's starting to say it's a queen consort. It's also, of course, she does have the son and heir, the prince, which, again, England has not had a prince since Edward VI. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, my dad missed his equivalent of his A-levels because he went, oh, no, his GCSEs, because a cruise ship had arrived in the Marlborough Sounds, so he skipped the exams just to go and have a look at it. <laughs> never seen anything so big. <laughs> uh, so they all get down to London, and on the 25th of July at Westminster Abbey, Anne is crowned Queen of England alongside James, uh, wearing a golden coronet with her long hair flowing loosely down to her waist, but there is controversy because she refuses to take the Anglican sacrament. Oh, no. So she remained stubbornly sat on her throne while James got up and went through the ceremony. Now, Anne's defence was that she had changed her Lutheran religion once before for the Presbyterians in Scotland. Mm. But many people suspect that she refused to take it because she is a Catholic. This is massive and also incredibly brave of her in front of everyone. Just refusing thankfully this isn't a prelude to greater troubles in england she seems to have been much more home in london uh, she lives an increasingly separate life from james so apart from the large state occasions they basically live apart but perhaps because of this their relationship seems to be much more cordial mm. so they're still regularly writing to each other and exchanging gifts and it has some political benefits as well because james doesn't really like being in london and amongst all the people. So he's always flitting between his various hunting lodges, whereas Anne is always resident in London in the big palaces. There is always a royal figurehead for the Stuart dynasty in London. Mm. Mm. And there's a boy at this point that's been brought up as a prince. They've got the boys brought up as a prince. Uh, there's another boy. Um, there's a daughter or there are a couple of daughters. And they have a, they have a couple more children in, in, in England. Right. So you've got the royal family going on. Anne embraces the dazzling lights of uh, London's culture. She loves to dress magnificently, inherits over 1,000 dresses from Elizabeth I. Mm, nice. Are they the same shape? Oh, they'll be tailored, won't they? Um, her court is something of an artistic salon, so she patronises playwrights, poets, musicians and architects. She's renowned for her masks, so that's masks spelt with a K. Courtly yeah. entertainment with music, dancing, acting, elaborate costumes and stage design. Mm. Yeah. And of course, she holds a lot of influence and a lot of potential future influence uh, through her close relationship with the heir, Prince Henry. Mm. Um, now, he is virulently Protestant, um, very sporty and athletic, very popular in England, increasingly to the detriment of uh, James himself. And he's very much the great hope for the future. Right. Yeah. OK. So he's he's got that whole Henry thing going. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But tragically, in November 1612, at the age of 18, Henry dies of typhoid fever. Oh, God, can you imagine? That's so... What a... But you said they've got another one. They do have another one. Uh, a rather less prospectively uh, promising uh, young Prince Charles. Of course. Mm. I can't believe I'd forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah, so this is this is part of the story we've been doing for, like, um, 13 years, right? Yeah, yeah I got it. Yeah. Charles, yeah, yeah. Um, Anne is devastated, of course, by Henry's death. The Venetian ambassador reported that he didn't offer her condolences because I was advised to act thus, and so have other ambassadors, because she cannot bear to have it mentioned, nor does she ever recall it without abundant tears and sighs. 
Mm. So that there is a sense that she really never gets over Henry's death. So when her second son, yeah, yeah, when her second son Charles is installed as Prince of Wales as Prince of Wales in 1616, so four years later, and refused to attend the ceremony lest she renew her grief by the memory of the last prince who runs still so much in some men's minds. Mm. Nevertheless, though, in 1618, the Venetian ambassador reported that she was passionately attached to Charles above all her other children, calling him her little servant. Oh, is that nice? Well, <laughs> it's affectionate. Right. Um, she was similarly protective over her daughter Elizabeth, who is um, proposed to marry Frederick V of uh, the Palatinate. Uh, she's concerned it's a bit beneath Elizabeth's dignity because he's not a proper monarch. Mm. Um, but she warms to him when she actually meets him. And indeed, it's ultimately through this marriage that the Hanoverians will get their claim to the throne of England. Oh, 100 right. hundred years later. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Anne's health goes into something of a sharp uh, decline in these years, suffers from chronic gout and arthritis, and she largely withdraws from court. The Earl of of Dunfermline observed in 1616, Her Majesty looks very well, but yet I think is not perfectly well. She infrequently dresses and keeps her bedchamber and a solitary life most times. Mm. It must just be so sad. Her doctor encouraged her to chop wood. I tell you what, that is good advice. <laughs> I've had that advice given to me before, and blimey, Bill, it is <laughs> therapeutic, gets you fit, and there's a, a I'm going to say Chinese proverb, could well be Japanese, I'm not familiar with the culture. He who cuts the wood up warms himself twice. Hmm. Um, so, big proponent of that, did she do it? Uh, well, she tries. The doctor's less thinking of uh, the psychological well-being so much as he thinks it will improve her blood flow. Probably true. This is good quack, this guy. <laughs> um, it probably doesn't solve the main issue that she is suffering from tuberculosis. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend chopping wood for tuberculosis. And Anne dies on the 2nd of March, 1619, uh, only 44 years old, uh, at Hampton Court in the same room where Jane Seymour had died century earlier mm. her son Charles had slept in the adjoining room and was constantly by her side uh, throughout her final, final illness James doesn't visit though in mm. fairness he A has something of a fear of illness and death and he was also actually very ill himself All right. but he did accord her a magnificent funeral and also of course wrote a poem for her <laughs> there once was a woman from Denmark <laughs> <laughs> Or, a slightly different take, So did my queen from hence her court remove, and left off earth to be enthroned above. She's changed, not dead, for sure no good prince dies, but as the sun sets only for to rise. Yeah. You might say it's a little bit more about him, really, than her, but... Yeah. uh, (laughs) And princes? Royalty, really. I mean, she's even better than a queen. She's like a bloke queen. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, that is the life and consortship of Anne of Denmark. We will review her after a quick break. Battleliness! Particularly in Scotland, Anne was often found fighting her corner, even with James himself. Her first bete noir was John Maitland, the Lord Chancellor and one of the most powerful men uh, at James's mm. court when she first arrived. She already held a grudge against him because he had opposed 
uh, the marriage, so he supported the, the Navarre match instead. But she was furious to find that he'd sold off lands that were going to be given as part of her dowry. Mm-hmm. So they were his lands, and then once he realised that they were going to go to her, he'd just start selling it all off to get the money. Uh, she sympathised with people who were opposed to Maitland, uh, most notoriously the Earl of Bothwell. Um, so Anne pleads his case when he is arrested for involvement with witchcraft. Oh, um, yeah. Anne let it go when she saw how much it angered James, but uh, attempts to resolve her heavy countenance with Maitland came unstuck when Maitland's wife gossiped about Anne's support for Bothwell's late attempt on James's life, not realising that Anne, who was in earshot, could now understand Scots. Did Bothwell try to kill James? He's sort of trying to get himself back in favour or trying to... It sort of gets a little bit more malevolent. James is definitely afraid for his life. So support for Bothwell is a bit, you know, a bit dodgy. Uh, Anne also clashes with James on various occasions. One notable example we mentioned was the Gowrie conspiracy in which the Earl of Gowrie, John Ruthven, and his younger brother Alexander are killed for supposedly attempting to assassinate James. And James then orders the expulsion of the whole family, including two of Anne's most trusted ladies, Barbara and Beatrix Ruthven. Okay. But Anne refused to accept the situation. Foremost among those refraining to believe in the guilt of the two brothers was the Queen herself. She remained in her apartment and refused to be dressed for two days. Weird protest. In the short term, James was able to placate Anne by paying a famous acrobat to entertain her. (laughs) Yeah. Long term, however, Anne doesn't let it go. She wrote to Robert Cecil, Elizabeth's chief minister, to secure a place for Barbara Ruthven in London, while in 1602 she smuggles Beatrix back into Holyrood Palace, which was considered a a very serious security breach by officials. Yeah. However, she does ultimately get her way. So in 1603, James relents, Barbara is granted a pension of £200, and Beatrix is uh, largely rehabilitated in 1606. All right. Mm. Good. Now, their biggest and most significant clash was over the custody of their eldest son, Prince Henry. Now, when Anne demanded that Henry be placed in her household, James said this was perilous to his estate, shouting that if he were about to die, he would, with his last breath, command Ma to retain possession of the prince. God, they've really fallen out there. Yeah. (laughs) Anne, however, does not let the issue drop, and it's reported that the Queen speaks more plainly than before and will not cease till she has her son. Mm. Mm. And this quickly escalated beyond um, just a marital disagreement, so you actually have factions at court developing around this specific issue of who gets to have Prince Henry. God, like the class pet. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Anne demands that the matter be referred to the Privy Council, but James refused. And then John Colville reported, There is nothing but lurking hatred disguised with cunning dissimulation betwixt the king and the queen, each intending by slight to overcome the other. Yeah, it's not a healthy marriage, is it? But the uh, Privy Council, did he refuse it because he thought they would back Anne? I don't know if he thought that they would back Anne, but I guess he was like, A... I'm just simply not going to open a situation in which there's a vote on this. And B, even Mm. if they do back me, I don't ideally want to encourage people to take an opposite side. Yeah, or think they have an opinion that's valid. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) 
Um, James went so far as to write to the Earl of Mar with strict instructions that he not release the prince to anyone without express permission, uh, express and direct permission from James himself, even specifying, in case God call me at any time, that neither for queen nor estate's pleasure ye deliver him until he be 18 years of age. Mm. So it's like, even if I die, you do not give him yeah. to anyone until he's come of age. Now, matters escalated, of course, in 1603 when Anne attempted to take possession of Prince Henry uh, when James and the Earl of Mar were down in England, and she came along with a posse of armed nobles. Mar's wife refused to let them in, and Anne was so enraged that she started beating her own belly. And she was pregnant at this point, so she results in a miscarriage. Oh, good grief. Like, what a stupid thing to do. I mean, she must have been absolutely furious, but... Mm. That feels like overriding some sort of... Whether that version of the account is sort of one of those that's been embellished over time. But I think she definitely does have a miscarriage at this point, which may just have been brought on by the the tension. Ultimately, of course, Anne does get her way, and James allowed her to escort Henry to England. Um, And, you know, and she was right. Lacking possession of the heir was a threat to her position as Queen, because as she pointed out, if something happened to James, which, if we'll recall the Scottish series, was not unlikely mm. given the fate of the previous five Jameses, yeah. Anne wouldn't be in a position to protect Henry, the heir. No, true. So, you know, she's got a good argument and she's fighting her cause. And what's more, Mary of Guise um, had been given possession of Stirling Castle to raise Mary, Queen of Scots, as a baby. So it wasn't quite as counter to tradition as James was suggesting. Oh, I see. Yeah, James had a particular interpretation of how it was meant to be, but you know it could have worked. Mm. Um, so we've got Anne, you know, very much fighting her corner and all of this against her. Really, all of these arguments I put forward are from her time in Scotland before she became Queen of England. So whilst yeah. we obviously are including all of this as relevant, all of her life. Oh, I see. As yeah. Queen of England, she seems to have calmed down a little bit. <laughs> which is maybe right. disappointing for battliness. She's not completely averse to some factional endeavour, so she really hated James's first very close personal friend uh, in England, Robert Carr. Mm. Um, and following the deaths of Prince Henry and Robert Cecil in 1612, um, to whom she was close, which weakened her position at court, she accepts a proposal from Carr's enemies to, to promote a rival favourite, uh, the dashing and charming George Villiers. So at Anne's urging, Villiers is knighted as a gentleman of the bedchamber, and uh, rapidly rose up the greasy pole, and he becomes famous as the Duke of Buckingham. Anne is given the credit for his promotion in James's favours. Foscarini, a Venetian envoy noted, uh, supported by her and dependent on her, um, and Carr is indeed supplanted as the favourite. Oh, so well done her. That's proper political battliness. Nevertheless, the, the plot really was masterminded by others, so she sort of agrees to get involved because she also hates Carr, but it's other people that have said, this is what we think we should do. Can you play your part? And she and she does. But otherwise, once in England, it sort of seems a bit calmer. And it's all kind of personal, these conflicts. So it's not, I guess there's nothing bigger going on. It's when things touch upon like her household or her family. But, you know, it's, it's still independence and agency. Does it, is it because there's a feeling that the English throne is more secure? She's There's no need for the panic now. Maybe, and maybe also just the fact that she and James seem to fall into a bit more of a settled setup with their separate yeah. households and all that sort of stuff. It maybe works a little bit better. They come to England, the children are older. So, what do you think of a battliness? It finished on a sort of sort of quite a peaceful note there, but 
big time. It's pretty good. Hmm. That getting involved in ousting um what's his name? Carr. And and that whole defying James. I mean she really did she really did stand her ground. Hmm. Defined uh, with the uh, the ladies of the bed have I made that up? No, Was yeah, the ladies of bed chamber, yeah. Yeah. Even though the stakes weren't well actually and stand and to stand up to what she believed in in the at the coronation. Hmm. She is punchy, isn't she? I mean, there that is high stakes to be fair, but it's not uh like um Anne Boleyn or something. Hmm. But she's definitely got that that character that if there were those stakes at play, she would have I think she would have stood her ground. She's got a self-interest that she's determined to protect. Yeah. Um, and if it suits her, like when she comes to England, get on with whatever you like. Mm. Yeah, I really like her. Mm. So a score? Uh, feels like a six to me. Mm. How about you? Yeah, I was, sort of, I was deciding between a six and a seven. It's, it's like it's strong battliness. It just doesn't... Again, it's you know coming off the six wives where we had you know really like stuff at the very top of how the yeah. country's been. I mean, I guess you know the battle over Prince Henry. I guess that's a big issue. That's another one. Yeah, Castilla. there were. Oh, I'm I'm tempted to go up to a seven mm. and meet you there. Yeah, Should we shake hands yeah. at the seven. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's fourteen for battliness. Surprised. Mm. Scandal. Anne's rather factional approach to Scottish politics led to various rumours. About her conduct. So uh, her association with Bothwell was controversial enough given that he was a dangerous outlaw accused of conspiring with witches. Mm. Uh, but Anne is said to have been charmed by him and her efforts to intercede on his behalf led some to speculate that she was in love with him. This isn't the same same Bothwell, is it? From He is the nephew of the last husband of Mary Queen of Scots who was also an Earl of Bothwell. So he's related but it is a different person. Similarly, when the Earl of Murray, who is an, uh, an ally of Bothwell, is assassinated by his rival, the Earl of Huntley, in 1592, James seems to try to sweep the whole thing under the carpet, but Anne publicly condemns Huntley, uh, and there was a popular contemporary Scottish ballad, The Bonnie Earl of Murray, which claimed that Murray was the Queen's love, and this helps explain why James acquiesces in the Earl's murder. I don't think it sounds likely. The Gowrie conspiracy which you mentioned a few times, always seems a little mm. bit mysterious because many suspect, basically, that James arranges the murder of the Ruthven brothers um, and then just pretends that they attack him first to justify it. Mm. Now, supposedly, there was open diffidence with James due to the discovery of some affection between Anne and the Earl of Gowrie's brother, the truest cause and motive of all that tragedy. Oh... So the story went that Anne had been walking in the gardens at Falkland Palace with Beatrix, one of the sisters, when they found Alexander, the younger of the brothers, sleeping. And Anne is so overcome by his beauty that she unlaced a silver ribbon and tied it round his neck. And then when James later sees and recognises it, he marches off to confront Anne, but Beatrix manages to get the uh, ribbon back to her in time so that she is able to deny it. That's uh, a, a great story, is it true? One suspects not. Or I mean, I I started to doubt it when she said she fell in love with him when he was asleep because <laughs> it, only in films do people sleep beautifully, <laughs> <laughs> especially sort of outside under a tree or something. Where <laughs> yes, yes. In reality, he is drunk, hungover, and he's wet himself. 
Yeah, and absolutely drooling or definitely snoring. Further to the idea of an affair, Sir George Home, one of James's most favoured courtiers, suggested that Anne was actually involved in the Gowrie conspiracy against James. Was this when they're in Scotland? Yes, this is all in Scotland. Um, Sir Roger Aston, an English courtier in Scotland, reported, What the Queen's part was in the matter, God knows. The presumptions were great, both by letters and tokens, as also by her own behaviour after the deed was done. Mm. Suspicious. We'll talk about Anne's masks, the courtly entertainments in subjectivity, but... It deserves a little bit of a mention here, because Anne and her ladies play leading roles in these productions, which is you know, scandalous itself for the Queen and her ladies to be cavorting yeah. on stage like actors. In one mask, The Vision of the Twelve Goddesses, Anne wore a tunic that was considered scandalously short. Oh. As uh, Sir Dudley Carlton recorded. Her clothes were not so much below the knee, but that we might see a woman had both feet and legs, which I never knew before. <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant uh, which i mean i don't know whether to assume that based on what we've heard this episode he genuinely didn't know that women had hands and feet <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> much more controversial however was the mask of blackness what's that this is where anne and her ladies play the daughters of niger i.e african nymphs and they did yeah. not as one would expect wear masks with a K, but rather, as Dudley again observes, their faces and arms up to the elbows were painted black, which was the disguise sufficient, for they were hard to be known. Uh, wouldn't have been controversial at the time, though, presumably. Well, obviously, blackface all sounds rather racist, and indeed, it really was. Um, but it is scandalous at the time, not because of the racism, but because Anne is showing herself as being foreign and uncivilised. And showing a bit of arm, presumably. And a bit of arm, yeah. A bit of elbow. I mean, it's, it's, she hasn't listened to my advice about reducing the sense of otherness. Lady Anne Clifford recorded her thoughts, which suggests that there was much tongue-wagging about the whole episode. From James specifically. <laughs> <laughs> now there was much talk of a mask which the Queen had at Winchester, and how all the ladies about the court had gotten such ill names that it was grown a scandalous place and the Queen herself was much fallen from her former greatness and reputation she had in the world. Isn't that funny that it's a completely different reason to find yes. it offensive? <laughs> yes. Now, there's quite a bit to digest there. The question is how much of it actually holds water, because the rumours of the r affairs with the Scottish nobles really just sounds like baseless gossip, because Anne is A, a woman, and B, getting involved in factional politics. So, obviously, she must be in love with whoever it is that's she's yeah. supporting because she's a woman and that's what women do yeah that's um yeah so so obviously an assumption that they'd make yeah so it, it seems hard to believe really that any of those uh rumored affairs are actually accurate it's just that she supports people who are opposed to james which you might see being as being a little bit scandalous for some of them the fact well i see it's a little that, battliness yeah she's just above all that nonsense yeah but perhaps we we credit that more with battliness and scandal yeah. i guess you could say it causes a bit of scandal at court the fact that she's backing these people yeah oh well but also i was thinking about the whole catholicism thing yeah again yeah, you could put that in there as scandalous I, it's it's, it's going to come up in subjectivity as negative okay. subjectivity but if you want to give her a bit of scandal points here well i that. reckon i just know that would be the um water cooler moment the next day mm. you know she didn't she yeah. didn't say the the vows or whatever it was mm. um 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I feel like she was a bit scandalous. But we've just got so much recent history. Yeah. To compete against. I guess the problem is her scandal is all essentially the stuff that she does in Battleus and Subjectivity. It's just because it's, yeah. it's a bit. That's right. It's actually just a shadow of the points that we've already scored her for. But nonetheless, I can't shake a feeling of scandal, scandaliness. Mm. What do we call it? Scandal? Scandal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a four or a five. What, um, can you help me decide? Uh, well, I quite like you said that it's a shadow of the other thing. So on that basis, I'm going to go three and a half as a halving. Okay, well, I'll, I'll stick with four. Four for you, three and a half for me. Seven and a half for Scandal. Subjectivity. Anne revives the traditional role of Queen as intercessor, so she makes various efforts on behalf of those who uh, cross James, which is praised mm. by uh, Sir James Melville. The Queen's Majesty, according to her custom, whenever she understands that His Majesty by wrong information is stirred up against any honest servant or subject, she procures incontinent for them, and uses great diligence to get sure knowledge of the verity, that she may the boldlier speak in their favour. Sounds rather nice. Hmm. Now, ironically, whilst the Jacobean age is considered a sort of a high watermark, this period in English history for great culture, James himself isn't much interested in any of it. So Alan Stewart describes how James was strangely aloof from many of the phenomena that we now see as peculiarly Jacobean. He fell asleep during England's most celebrated plays and showed little interest in momentous scientific advances. Oh, James. So really, it's not really James who ushers in the age that bears his name, but probably more credit does actually deserve to go to Anne. So we mentioned, obviously, the masks outside of the controversy. She commissions and performs in six of these, plus a seventh that she watches. And these are really major theatrical productions. They've got elaborate set designs and special effects, all designed by Inigo Jones. I love that name. It was high on the list. (laughs) Scripts, largely by the famous playwright Ben Johnson. Oh, yeah. As well as lots of music and dancing. And Anne is sort of both producer and leading lady in these affairs. So she's directing what is going to happen as well as actually starring in it. And it's performing at a time when women were otherwise banned from performing on stage at all. So it's quite an important little chapter in the development of women's performance. Yeah, just shame about the context. These are also political events, so Anne carefully selects jewellery and apparel to visualise support for certain policies or certain alliances. And foreign dignitaries are always very keen to attend. So a Venetian envoy conceded in 1604 that in everyone's opinion no other court could have displayed such pomp and riches. Mm. Anne oversees extensive building and remodelling programmes. Uh, Simon Turley of English Heritage has described her renovations to Somerset House, although it's renamed Denmark House, when Anne's queen, um, as the single most important and extensive royal domestic architectural work of the early Stuart period. So she didn't... um Build it. Somerset House was of an earlier, earlier, earlier build, but she extensively renovates and remodels it. While Inigo Jones is commissioned to build Queen's House at Granite, which is this large garden lodge, which is among the first Palladian buildings in England. What does that mean? Oh, right, sort of mock Greek, maybe. Mm. Oh, well, I'll look it up. But this is all because of her, um, uh, because of her architecture. Yeah, her dad. Love. Her dad. Yeah. Lots of palaces in Denmark, so, yeah, so that's from an early age. Oh, that's nice, she can do that. And her patronage extends far and wide. Has their playwrights and poets, so Samuel Daniel, Ben Johnson, we mentioned, John Dunn, very famous poet, mm-hmm. painters and designers, Paul Van Summer, Isaac Oliver, Inigo Jones, musicians, including the famous lutenist John Dowland. 
Sting oh, yeah. Sting covered uh, did a, an album of uh, loot works by Dowd. Oh, you know you're in trouble as a pop star when you start bringing out special <laughs> albums on a loot. You? <laughs> yeah. You've got to, got to, at this point, look in the mirror and say, does anyone want this? <laughs> she also developed an extensive collection of art, which would uh, be a sort of a foundation for the royal collection that would more f- fully flourish under Charles I. When Robert Cecil teased her for obsession with art, she sent back the response that she was more contented amongst those harmless pictures in the poultry gallery than your lordship is with your great employments in fair rooms. Yeah, I'm with you there. That's brilliant. Anne also seems to have been quite popular, um, although mainly based in London. When she went elsewhere, it was usually to places James hadn't been before, so Bath on four occasions, Bristol, Warminster and Wells. James doesn't really ever enjoy being on display and tends to avoid public processions wherever possible, but Anne seems to have had a little bit more of the popular touch. So such Mm. as her warm welcome that she declared, I never knew I was a queen till I came to Bristol. (laughs) And if Bristol don't adopt that as a slogan, (laughs) more fool them. (laughs) Yes, that is perfect, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Against her, a Venetian envoy recorded that while Anne was full of kindness for those who support her, on the other hand, she is terrible, proud, unendurable... (laughs) To those she dislikes. <laughs> oh, fine. To those she dislikes. Yeah, me mm. too. But she she seems very much a woman who holds a grudge. Now, we've mentioned all of those conflicts in Scotland with various nobles that she had. In England, she falls out with Henry Howard as the Lord Privy Seal over various issues. She resents Thomas Overbury for being insolent towards her. She dismissed her first lady, Jane Drummond, when her husband secured the chamberlainship of Prince Charles without her knowledge. Disliked Robert Carr so much that she intrigued to replace him. Uh, in James's affections, so we we've got we've got quite a lot of falling out with people, and the Queen is usually meant to be the one that bridges the gap between the King and the nobles and tries to secure peace, where it feels like she's actually the bull in the china shop. Uh, yeah, she's spiky, spiky, spiky. If we're looking at this, would you like to be her subject? She leaves behind culture, and she got there by hell or high water. You know, she got there by being a bit of a pain in the bum. Not ideal, but. Yeah, and so Gemma Fields pointed out, these are all quite personal and petty disputes, and Anne's not really an antagonistic force at court, or really any kind of threat to James's kingship. Apart, perhaps, from things like Prince Henry, James did see that as a threat to his kingship, but otherwise these are all quite low-level yeah. disputes. That's what I, mean, I meant with the battliness, I think, that she has that battliness personality, but just there wasn't the cause for her to get behind, I suppose. Now, another area of controversy which could have been very damaging for James's kingship was religion. Oh, yeah. As we said, Anne comes to Scotland a Lutheran, but then is suspected of converting to Catholicism. Now, Elizabeth had at first approved of Anne as a match for James because of her religion, and she then wrote to Anne out of concern that uh, her various Catholic counsellors would seek to turn her to the dark side. Hmm. When some prominent ministers came to uh, in Scotland came to lecture Anne about her behaviour, she refused to see them because she was at the dancing. Fair enough. I'm at a disco. I'm, I'm here to give you a lecture <laughs> about how naughty you are. I think I think I'll just carry on. Um, all right, dear. So, having refused, uh, the minister uh, David Black declared in a sermon that the devil was in the court and question the requirement they had to pray for the Queen, when we have no cause, she will never do us good. Wow. Mm. Why, is it, who, why is he allowed to say that? I guess also if you recall John Knox lecturing Mary Queen of Scots it's when she first came to Scotland. But, you know, it's the, same, it's the same church, obviously, but now much more yeah. ensconced. 
Yeah. In England, Anne's refusal to take the Anglican sacrament caused quite the stir. Um, and the same year, 1603, an intelligence officer, Sir Anthony Standham, was arrested when he was discovered bringing a rosary to Anne from Pope Clement VIII. Oh, she's definitely Catholic, isn't she? Now, Anne protested her annoyance at this intrusion, that she had nothing to do with her, but she does also intercede to secure his release from the Tower of London. Yeah, very fine line she's treading. I mean, this is such dangerous times. Some historians, however, think that maybe this served a little bit more of a hidden purpose, because there's no evidence that Anne actually converted to Catholicism. And Pope Paul V noted her inconstancy in religious matters. So the ambiguity over Anne's religion could actually be quite useful because James, through her, could try to appeal to English Catholics oh, yeah. and indeed court the Vatican and Spain say, well, you know, maybe we are a bit more friendly. Yeah. And yet, in contrast, he can present himself as staunchly Protestant. So people say, oh, well, we know James is all right. He's proper Protestant. He's a Scottish Protestant. Yeah. Mm. Maybe they played upon the ambiguity, so maybe it was a useful tool. That is a jolly useful tool, isn't it? Another criticism of Anne's queenship is that her distance from James uh, in England um, meant that her significance was pretty limited. So the courtier mm. Anthony Weldon quipped that the king was ever best when furthest from his queen. Um, and this limitation is perhaps best evidence in 1617 when James made his one and only return visit to Scotland. Mm. Um, didn't take Anne with him and indeed he did not leave her as regent despite contemporaries reporting that she dreams and aims at a regency. Who who would did he choose over her? Uh, he appoints a council. Oh right. So he tries to avoid anybody, sort of holding particular power. That's sensible, isn't it? That's sensible. Um, and indeed, the council and Prince Charles, as heir, do cluster around Anne at Greenwich, which was retitled in the Privy Council Register as Her Majesty's Court at Greenwich. And James does decree that the council will receive written communications from him via Anne. So as Gemma Field argued, even if Anne's was a token role in the monarchical theatre of power, it was still an important and necessary part. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a role to play, even if they don't get on. Mm. I think overall, good. Mm. Yeah, we've got All a of huge that. amount of cultural stuff going on. Yeah, which is the um, important bit for me. Mm. Would like, but the person on the, f- on the floor? Or in the field? On the ground. <laughs> on the ground, that's it. <laughs> the p- um, person on the floor? <laughs> what well, does the man on the cellar. floor? Think? <laughs> oh, I must yeah. be seriously grounded. The man under the and floor. <laughs> I think it's just like the uh, um, all the new buildings, all the interesting new art, mm. and probably wouldn't even know that she was a bit of hard work. Mm. What was the other bad things? We've got the Catholicism. We've got the conflict with various people, and the sense that she sort of she's not actually very significant in terms of the bigger state politics stuff. Mm. But she, I feel it feels like she is doing the bit that James has completely ignored. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it'd be magnified in that sense. Yeah. Uh, but thank goodness she was mm. there to to do it. Mm. A five. Ah. That is what they're meant to do, isn't it? It does happen sometimes. So you talk very, very positively, and I'm thinking, oh, well, Ali's obviously going for an eight or a nine. I think I'm just going for a seven. <laughs> then you come out. Oh, really? Well, yeah, because I think well, the, the, the cultural stuff, the cultural stuff's really good. The Jacobean it age. Is. So maybe I played it too safe. Yeah, I'll go up to a six. Hmm. So a six from you, seven from me, 13. Subjectivity. Longevity. Anne is Queen Consort from the 24th of March, 1603. So we are just looking at the English period here. 24th of March, 1603 to the 2nd of March, 1619. It's 15 years and 11 months, so 15.92 years, which gives her a score of 10. That's good. 
which is the 30th best overall, 22nd best that we've had thus far. I mean, absolutely average. Dynasty, not the programme. Anne had two surviving children by James, which again gives her a score of 10, which is joint 26th overall. She actually has nine pregnancies, so there were another three children that survived the birth. Henry's the only other one that lived through childhood, and sadly only two outlive Anne. Yeah, shame. Anyway, that gives Anne overall a total score of 54.5. That's good. It's pretty good. That is exactly the same score as Matilda of Boulogne, so that's joint 12th. Oh, right. But it's not all about the score, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! No. We'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like it's it's a gut one, this. Her challenge is that she's not one of the bigger names in English history, so she is one that people probably haven't heard much about, if anything. So it's quite hard for her to force her way into the discussion. Mm. I guess in her favour, we've got her as the major cultural patron, perhaps the architect of the Jacobean age, more so than James. She's less famous than her predecessor's six wives, maybe in a way a little bit more successful as a queen, perhaps she might say. Actually, maybe it's better to be there for 15 to 20 years and not get your head cut off after three years. It definitely is. I feel like maybe I... It's really good, is the thing. Yeah. It's really quite... um... If maybe if it should appeared before the Tudors, it wouldn't. Yeah, if she's suffering. She's in the shadow of those guys. Mm. Um, and when you when you when I try and think logically, she ticks every box. But as I said, it was just a gut thing. I don't don't think so. It's the star quality thing. I think really, mm. she doesn't have it. It's like because you're you're now into now getting into your cricket. It's like she comes out and she scores a solid forty. Yeah, and you're like, well, look. Ideally, we're looking for a century. You know, that's yeah. the star stuff. And there'll be some people who come out and they'll hit five sixes and then get out. And you say, yeah. well, that was amazing as well. It's a lower score, but wow, what an impact. Yeah. Whereas it's like, either. you just plod along. It's good for it. You contributed to the score. You kept things moving along. Good job, but... Ultimately, no, but uh, yeah. So I think she does a pretty decent job. Great cultural impact, but ultimately just doesn't really quite have that that star quality and it's that classic thing we see with the consort she predeceases james she doesn't get to be queen mother yeah which is a role that really they uh, that so far the concepts have really shined in the shackles are off when you get those queen mother points <laughs> yeah <laughs> they may be easier to get but but they uh aren't worth as much obviously so that's a no from you and it's a no for me she doesn't have the rex factor she'd probably make a jolly good uh like Premier League coach after the, her career. You know, yeah. Knows the ins and outs. Assistant manager job in like a, a foreign league. <laughs> get some credibility. Come in and take someone up to the Premier from First Division. And then you're looking at a, a big five that's down on its luck. A Chelsea. <laughs> Correspondence corner. So that was Anne of Denmark. Let us know what you thought about her. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Email RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And please do send in a hashtag consort card to give us an image, uh, an episode image for Queen Anne to replace the uh, the lack of the Heritage Limited playing cards. What would you do for, for Anne of Denmark? Well, you've got the storms. I think that's it. I think when there isn't a... Um, yeah, if they haven't got an easy, a readily available consort card... 
I think that does tells us everything we need to know about whether they mm. get the Rex Factor or not. If not you'd like true. to support the podcast, be sure to subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. Donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get access to over 200 bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash Rex Factor. 200, that is value, Graham. It is indeed. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Claire Arnold, Frederick Rodin, Rebecca Solomon, Alexandra Ashar, Claire Ellitz, Ironic Badger of the Home Counties, Stuart Brandwood, Joe Lancaster, Liz Mills, Melissa Viscara, Ariel Herlick, Tracy Cullen, Christine Sandgren, Louise Saul, Nick Hodges, Charlotte Fishman, Melita Romasco, Celia Siebert, Fiona MacDonald, Veronica Fortune, Caitlin Reed, Lisa Drinkwater, Elizabeth Jones, Brian Kasprich, and Ali Hood. What? Yes, we've, we've, you, you've got your shout-out, Ali, because you're paying Rex Factor on a monthly basis to access your own podcast special episode content. Oh, right. So, you know, everyone gets a shout-out. Yeah. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> um, gosh, I've got fingernail grasp of my comings and goings in the accounts, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is all from us today. Next time we will be reviewing the Queen Consort of Charles I, Henrietta Maria, which, as we mentioned, takes us very much into uh, the world of Catholicism and indeed the Civil War. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Okay, mm. things are hotting up. See you next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!